This podcast is an unedited excerpt from an MCLE program presented at MCLE's Conference Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, please see the MCLE website. I'm going to now turn it on over to Lisa to talk about uh, sort of what's happened in the last year uh, when it comes to these kinds of trusts and Medicaid. So I would say um, just to start, this has been a you know fairly significant year um, with respect to Medicaid trust and their treatment um, or assessment of their treatment in a long-term care planning scenario. So what's essentially happened is that we've had two more um, Supreme Judicial Court cases um, discussing, you know, the use of Medicaid or irrevocable trust in a Medicaid application that has really, I think, um, clarified the state of affairs um, with respect to Medicaid trust and um, has really streamlined the litigation and the arguments to the point where I think the Fournier case came out in July of 2021, and I don't believe since then I've had any new um, like Medicaid trust denial cases come to my office, and there's only maybe like a handful of cases that I'm, or, or even less, I would say at this point that I'm handling. Um, so I think that what has happened as a result of the litigation is that MassHealth has really been forced to narrow down their um, list of issues that they like to pick on with respect to these trusts. And I'll talk about the eligibility operations memo that Karen brought up um, to the point where it's, um, you know, fairly um, kind of pick on. So just to kind of, you know, update everyone a little bit, um, I know Karen touched upon this, but um, with respect to, you know, what is an irrevocable income only trust for Medicaid planning, um, you know, as Karen discussed, they're frequently used in the Medicaid long-term care planning context. The ones that I've seen or that I handle most frequently um, in appeals and such um, have real property in them. So typically people transfer titles um, of their home into these trusts to protect it from the imposition of a Medicaid lien if one or both um, individuals, uh, spouses, or just an individual needs nursing home care. Um, the key to this trust, and really the test I think is very simple, and you know what we have seen over the past several years inception of this litigation with the going back to the Doherty decision is that it became very convoluted when really it is a pretty straightforward test um, articulated in the Medicaid statute, um, which is commonly called the any circumstances test. Um, and I will read it. it. It just says, if there are any circumstances under which payment from the trust could be made to afford the benefit of the individual, the portion of the corpus from which payment to the individual could be made shall be considered resources available to that individual. So that is really the test. Um, and that appears within the Medicaid statute, um, the federal statute. So, um, Really, how I read the any circumstances test um, is meaning 
Um, there has to be, in order for a trust to be countable, um, obviously there's, it's going to be uh, excludable it's, and it meets the five-year look-back period. That's really the threshold matter is have you gotten through the five-year look-back? So you transfer your property in um, and then we wait the five years. Um, and then the second threshold is can payment from the principal be made to the applicant's benefits? Um, a common question, just as a little aside, that I get all the time, and I think, you know, to the extent people are doing Medicaid applications that are listening to this, I mean, you might get the same question, is, um, you know, people ask, oh, if I make it through the five-year look-back period, do I then not have to tell, um, you know, Medicaid about the trust, or do I not have to disclose any of the assets of the trust, et cetera? And that is not true. Um, just because you make it through the five years, doesn't mean that all of a sudden Medicaid doesn't look at the trust. Um, all of the cases that were litigated um, that you read about, um, those trusts made it through the five-year look back. Um, and that is really the threshold issue. And then they get scrutinized. Um, so that's something, you know, I think if you're newer to the area, that can be a common misconception. And certainly clients have asked me about that a lot. Um, so I just, you know, kind of wanted to clarify that as a point of reference. Karen, did you have anything you wanted to say? Yeah, I just wanted to chime in. Back in the dark, dark days before Lisa was winning all these cases, um, I was trying to figure out how could I not disclose this trust? You know, just because I, I wanted to answer the question that they asked, you know, did you, are, are you a donor, beneficiary, or trustee, uh, you know, of any trust? So I wanted to be able to answer that question truthfully, no. So the Uniform Probate Code actually allows for trustees to declare that they hold trusts. So I would, was trying to draft a declaratory model trust where the donor gave the property to the trustee and the trustee would declare the trust as the person, all of the terms. So the actual word donor was never in the trust at all. So, and I looked at the definition of donor under the Medicaid um, um, regulations, and I didn't really find anything that forced me to say no. I actually had, uh, so I was thinking about, like, if I had to do this, how would I, be able to be successful. So I actually had a fair hearing on a trust case. And I said, listen, you know, this trust is no different than me giving the property to the kids and the kids, you know, establishing a trust for their own benefit. The donors have no rights in this. And I said, listen, I could have had the trustee declare the trust, you know, with this, with just the kids as beneficiaries. I shouldn't have a problem. So the hearing officer heard what I had to say and was like, huh, yeah, I can see where you could go with that, but, you know, if it, that trust was discovered, you're going to make the case really, really suspicious of what you're doing, and you're going to have problems down the road. So even though I was getting um, creative with my drafting back in those dark days, um, in the end, I decided not to really just be forthcoming with the trust, with the donor. It just made drafting a lot easier. It's kind of like what you did was like a step transaction. No, it, it wasn't. It was the trustees who were like, you know, 
taxpayer A and taxpayer B um, established a trust um, as the trustees of that trust. You know, we declare that we hold the house mm -hmm. and the, um, you know, whatever, uh, for the benefit of kids A, B, and C. So in that, you know, scenario, they weren't the trustees, they weren't the beneficiaries. And then the question was, did they meet the definition of donor? Um, but they were never, you know, said as they were a donor in the trust. And so um, after five years, they wouldn't have been considered the donor because it had been more than five years since the transfer occurred. So, but, and the chairing officer sort of understood the argument, but ended up saying, you know, listen, you're going to have a problem if you try to do that because we're really going to, you know, come down hard on those kind of cases. You're, so in addition to saying no, which we disagree with, you're going to, you know, have problems with not having disclosed the trust. Well, and you don't have to. Anymore. Yeah, and I think to a certain point, the, um, and I get why you might have wanted to do that or try to do it because during that time, it was very unclear as to whether you could even do these trusts anymore. But now with all of the case law, you know, I think in, unless Congress like totally amends the statute to take this away as an option at all, um, it's pretty, you know, settled that these trusts work um, and that they actually work very well. Um, I, I think that, like I said before, you know, I, since July, I haven't really seen any, uh, had any new irrevocable trust cases cross my desk. And I think probably what I'm going to see or what people are going to see are that it's really those trusts um, that have the, you know, there are bad trusts. There are trusts that are written incorrectly. There are trusts that have mistakes that allow, um, you know, principal to be dispersed to the grantor in some way, maybe like through a termination clause or something like that. And those certainly, you know, are countable. Um, but I think the, you know, strange arguments and the going outside of trust law arguments, I think personally, um, and I can talk about what I think is still kind of remaining is mostly kind of settled. Um, so, you know, Basically, we had the Fournier case in July, uh, Fournier v. Sutters, and that was an SJC case that I handled. Um, and that case really solely dealt with the issue of if you have a grantor trust, an irrevocable income-only trust, um, and there the grantor retains a lifetime um, power to appoint assets to a charity or nonprofit, does that make the trust countable? Um, the kind of genesis of this argument or the beginning of this argument started um, really in around 2017 um, when the SJC came out with the decision in the Daly case, the Daly and Nadeau cases, um, where uh, the, the court threw a sentence or two in the, the decision which said that Medicaid could or had the right to contemplate whether power of appointment to charity or nonprofit could make the trust countable on the basis of the fact that there could be some nursing homes um, in the state that are nonprofit organizations or they're charitable, they're set up as charitable entities, et cetera. So that kind of spawned this litigation where all of a sudden Medicaid 
was looking at every single trust that had a power of appointment to charity or nonprofit, which I never realized how many of these trusts had that power until this litigation began. And then it seems like every other trust had it. Um, so they would just like routinely trust for that purpose. Um, so while in the daily cases, we resolve the issue of like Karen kind of mentioned the use and occupancy clause making the trust accountable, the court said, no, that doesn't make it accountable. It created this whole other set of issues, um, which got resolved. It seemed like time to me went by very quickly, but really I, it was like five, probably about five or four years in between those cases. If you think about it. Um, so thankfully we now have this decision, the Fournier um, v. Sutters, and essentially what the court said, what the SGC said was the ability to appoint assets to a nonprofit or a charity did not make the trust accountable. Um, that there has to be a quote unquote direct path um, from principal to the applicant. So I always interpreted that to mean um, there has to be some way for, for the trustee to disperse principal directly to the applicant for benefit. Um, this could be somewhat like, like a trustee uh, could have the discretion to disperse, or there could be like a termination provision where um, trust terminates um, and it says that there's no exclusion uh, that the grantor can't receive principal or something like that. So I think, it, you know, unless it's one of those limited circumstances now, you're going to just see a lot more of these cases um, kind of going away. And um, I will add that at the time the um, Fournier case came out, I had another case pending in the, it was in the appeals court. And that case uh, was the Brisbane matter. And it dealt with um, Mass Health was trying to challenge, uh, revive a challenge to a power of appointment, uh, lifetime power of appointment issue to children, um, which as Karen discussed was kind of put to rest in the Hain case, but MassHealth then tried to like revise it. Um, and after the Fournier case, um, they dropped that case, the Brisbane case. So presumably they're done with power of appointment to charity, nonprofit or issue. That it's like these step kind of arguments that, oh, well, you could give it to the nonprofit, you could give it to the charity, give it to the kid, and then they could turn around and give it back to the grantor. So I think really it clarified that kind of the Fournier case, like it has to be a direct um, grant of uh, ability to receive principal. So it could be like, if it was like a general power of appointment, um, the Fournier case really got into like what's general power of appointment versus limited. Can you condition, um, can you say I have, I grant or retain this power I can't receive a distribution of principal, but can I um, disperse principal via this power and then condition it on it coming back to me? And that's actually, that's an impermissible use of the power. It's, it's, like a, it's referred to as a fraud on the power. So there was like some case law from, you know, a long time ago that kind of talked about that. That obviously wasn't a Medicaid case. So that was really um, how that argument got kind of knocked out. Um, so I think I agree with Karen that it's looking very bright um, and, you know, I don't get as nervous when I have a application with an irrevocable trust across my desk. Like I don't tell people, oh, this is definitely going to go to hearing. 
Um, I think that a lot of them have just been going through. So, which is excellent. Um, with that being said, I still think there's a couple provisions, um, and you know, I'll talk about the other case too, the Gilfoyle case, but I think that there are a few provisions that you should um, be on the lookout for, either if you're gonna be advising people in a Medicaid application process, or you're going to be doing these trusts yourself. Um, I think the the one the the provision that I don't like to see, the, I think the most at this point that makes me very nervous is um, the power to loan assets to the grantor. So you obviously these are, this is something that's always embedded within the trustee powers provision, um, and basically it appears in different ways that I've seen it, you know, it says basically the trustee can make a, a loan to the grantor. Um, sometimes it says without interest, um, without, you know, interest or security that it could be an unsecured loan and so forth. And there's no limitations on it. Um, you know, Medicaid does challenge that provision and that is still within their eligibility operations memo that they have not updated since um, the recent case, the Fournier case and the Gilfoyle. Um, so, you know, I have, per, you know, I have lost a couple of cases on this issue in the Superior Court um, and at the Board of Hearings. Um, I've won maybe one or two. I've lost some. You know, my argument always is that it doesn't, it's a loan. It has to be paid back. So it's kind of like the power of substitution in that way. Um, however, you know, so, so basically if the, the grantor could receive a loan. Um, it would be money in their account that could be presumably countable when they uh, receive it, but it doesn't make the whole trust countable um, and it has to be paid back. Uh, Medicaid says, well, there's no guarantee it's not going to be paid back. And so I personally just think people should exclude that power from their trust, um, either just don't include it or put like a statement in there that says, if you're gonna include it, just put a statement in there really clear that you cannot uh, loan assets to the grantor. They can't borrow assets from the trust either. Um, I just would exclude that. And in, in, in trust that I've seen where that is like excluded, um, that you if you have a power to loan and then you, you specify that the grantor and their spouse um, can't receive a loan or borrow funds, then Medicaid says fine. Um, they don't go after it in that way. It's kind of a frustrating argument. I mean, I don't see that. I don't have any cases in the pipeline going to the appeals court. Um, you know, I don't necessarily know how that would go. Um, so you just kind of want to go through and look and you know take that out if possible. Um, Karen, did you have something you wanted to say? Well, just that um, in the chart that I have, it talks about this power to borrow. And this is where that power got initially put in, probably. Um, it is a grantor trust power, uh, yeah. the ability to borrow without adequate consideration or security, or the, the actual borrowing of assets and not paying them back by the end of the year um, are tax powers that are often utilized um, to get um, grantor trust status. But, um, you know, it's just not worth it. There's so many other powers you could have 
that are going to get you the tax benefit that you don't need this power. Um, and it is a problem from, from Medicaid's point of view. Um, I have references to uh, the federal and state regulation on why MassHealth is taking the position that it is, is accountable. So um, don't put those powers in your trust, even under right. right. Right, exactly. You can achieve grantor trust status in other ways. I mean, I think where people got into trouble was you would just like dump all these powers in. And that's when Medicaid started to like have a field day, as we saw. Um, and obviously it used to be much worse. They would just go out there and be like 20 things and the trust isn't like. Um, so now it's just, you know, it could be one or two, um, you know, sort of thing. Um, you know, the use and occupancy provision obviously is fine. After that daily decision came out, I was a little worried that, um, you know, because I think the court said the use and occupancy, um, it, it had some sort of where they could receive the income from the trust. So I, you kind of very briefly, Medicaid tried to do this thing where they were saying, oh, if Um, so they have kind of stopped. Um, so they have kind of stopped doing that. I haven't seen that. Um, Lisa, can you repeat what you were just going to say? You froze there for a minute. Oh, okay. I was just saying, what, where did I cut off about the use and occupancy provision? Yes. That I just, I don't see that as an issue that for a while they were maybe trying to impute rental income, um, but they have not. They've really ceased doing that. I haven't seen that in a very long time. So um, I think that's fine. Can you, you can hear me now, right, Karen? You can, yep. All right. Um, you know, certain powers that I might, you know, be very careful of or, you know, take them out. Um, I've never really loved the power that says um, you could pay the grantor's income or estate taxes. Um, they've challenged that in the past. Um, you know, maybe if you didn't put it in there, you still could pay the taxes, but just, you know, I wouldn't put it in. I mean, in the income, with respect to the income um, tax issue, um, that was an issue in daily. And I actually, in the NATO case, and that was a remand because um, the court said if there is rental income and the trust can pay um, the taxes, you have to figure out how much. Um, the, you know, the trust could theoretically pay. So I had to do this like analysis with the CPA in my firm and things to show that you wouldn't have any uh, income because your PPA would offset it and that sort of thing. But you don't want to have to do that. So I would just like leave it out. Can you hear me, Karen? Sure. Yep, I can hear you. And what I think is also interesting is if you need a provision in there to have the grantor pay the taxes, what you may want to think about whether you really need grant or trust status. Maybe you don't want, maybe you want the trust to pay the taxes and you don't want it to be a grant or trust. Right. So, you know, if we think about how we draft um, to get the right results, I mean, if the client can't afford to pay the taxes on the trust and you don't need it to be a grant or trust for other reasons, don't draft it as a grant or trust. Have it be drafted in a way that it's not going to be a grant or trust. And that way the, um, 
trust will pay the taxes on the income and they'll have the income to do it. Yep. Yeah, it's not an issue. Right. Correct. Correct. Um, it's not an issue for the trust to pay the taxes. I think it's, if I'm remembering, it's the provision that says like, it, you know, they could pay if there's some sort of income tax liability to the grantor or the trust that personally or something. Right. Um, if you have a termination provision in the trust, that in and of itself is not a problem. It's just how, where it, how it says where the money is going to go when it terminates. So, you know, you can't, you have to be really careful. And I've seen trusts where, you know, maybe they had a termination clause that they carried over from a revocable trust and it revokes and or terminates and says it, the principal can go back to the grantor or something like that. So you want to be really careful what, you know, if you're combining trust or you're doing your document that if it terminates, um, I always say something like uh, it would be dispersed as if the grantor is deceased or um, issue uh, principal to the issue and income to the grantor or something like that. Um, so just be really careful when you're drafting with, with that provision. Um, per did you have a, something to yeah, say? And you don't need to have a termination provision. Right, you don't Right. You know, the trustee, when they have the discretion to make distributions, can terminate by, I mean, that's technically not terminated, but they can empty the trust out. And that's all yep. you really care about. Who cares if an empty trust is out there? Right. Um, I've seen trust with trust protector provisions. Um, so the ability of the trust protector to add or remove beneficiaries, I've actually seen that in trust and we don't want that. So I wouldn't, I don't really like trust protectors in these trusts. Um, I think it just adds another level uh, layer of, uh, you know, caution. Um, I guess if you're going to do it, that's fine, but you have to kind of like specify that they can't make, they can't change the dispositive scheme of the trust in that nature. Um, Power to make amendments, you know, that I think, I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, I think that that's generally okay as long as you put something in there that says, um, you know, it's like an administrative amendment, not a amendment with respect to the dispositive provision. And then you kind of have to consider, like, is Medicaid, if you do an amendment, are they going to claim there's a new uh, start to five-year look back? Because um, I've seen that many times as well, where like, say, maybe you have an old trust with a power to loan um, and power to loan to the grantor. And you're like, okay, well, I know that this is an issue. I'm going to take it out. I'm going to amend. I, I think that you need to show med Medicaid that you did the amendment within five years. And they, they will probably say it created a new five to look back. I haven't actually litigated something like that. Um, you know, I, I don't know how that would turn out, but I think that that would be very challenging because you have that case. Um, I forget the name of it off the top of my head. Um, that deals, I think, maybe with an amended trust within the look back. Um, in any event, so that's just something to think of. I, I don't think that's necessarily bad to have the amendments. It's just if you do it, it's probably going to create a five-year look back. Um, so in addition to the Fournier case, we, there was also another case um, in the SJC last year, the Guilfoyle v. Sutter's case. 
And what that case was about, um, I think it was more, it's going to be more um, narrowly applicable than say maybe the Fournier case, which I think is more expansive um, in its reach. But the Guilfoyle case, actually, I thought, you know, I litigated that as well. And I thought it was interesting because it dealt with nominee trust in the context of a Medicaid application. Um, just to kind of summarize for everyone, uh, nominee trust is uh, kind of like a unique creature under Massachusetts law. Um, it's a, you know, it's a realty trust. It's just a title holding entity. Um, so it's just is really like a shell to hold title um, to real property for the true owners of the property. So the true owners of the property you typically would have your nominee trust, and then you have your scheduled beneficiaries, beneficial interest, and the uh, nominee trust has to be recorded at the registry, but the schedule does not. So the purpose of the, these trusts um, is really to kind of like uh, keep title, keep the ownership of the property maybe secretive or that you don't want to disclose to the world who owns it. So it's in a nominee trust. And you don't record the schedule, um, which can be problematic because you know the schedules get lost. But um, Massachusetts has a very robust body of law about nominee trusts, what they are, how the ownership interests um, play out in a variety of contexts. Like uh, when I was researching this case, it was like um, you know this is very well developed in bankruptcy law. Um, you know, there's a people trying to attach property for a settlement for like a PI case or some sort of liability case it's discussed there. And really there was the common theme was um, that the owners on the schedule are the true owners. So it's like, if I had a nominee trust, you know, the Neely uh, nominee trust, the Neely realty trust, and then the schedule says Lisa Neely, hundred percent owner, so I'm the owner of the property. It's not the trust, I own it. Um, and the problem that came up, as you can imagine, with Medicaid is when they see this, it's not defined under their regulations. Obviously, it's not defined under the Medicaid statute. So they're like, well, what do we do with this? What is it? It's, it's you know, um, a lot of times these trusts say that they can be amended. They could even be revoked. Um, and title reverts back to the owners on the schedule. So just because the trust can change or the trust can be revoked theoretically, it doesn't change the ownership like with a revocable trust. Title doesn't revert back to the grantor. Um, it reverts back to the owners of the property. And they can never, like one owner can never, if there's co-owners of the property on the schedule, they can never just like take the interest away from the other. It's like you, it's like you own it in a deed, really. Um, so this case was just, it was a typical, very standard nominee trust. Um, it was probably, I think by the time she, um, you know, Mrs. Frank submitted her Medicaid application, it, it had been, I think it was like already 20 years, 20 years had passed. Um, and she held a life estate interest and her kids um, held, um, it was, you know, like joint tenants with rights of survivorship. Um, so it's kind of just like she owned it in a life estate deed. And uh, rather than just saying, okay, well, we'll counter life estate interest um, or try to anyway, 
Medicaid, you know, being Medicaid, said, nope, we're going to count the whole thing because, you know, she could decide at any moment to take the property interest back. She could revoke it. She could take the interest away from the others. And therefore, it's, um, it's, a, it's a revocable trust. But even if it's not a revocable trust, it's irrevocable because um, it's ir irrevocable trust if you're saying it's, it, the interest is irrevocably gifted and um, because she can take it back, it makes principal accountable. So it's just very convoluted because Medicaid trying to fit it into these uh, boxes where it's just not, it doesn't go because it's not a revocable or irrevocable trust. It's a real system. So, um, you know, this case got uh, transferred to the SJC and um, we got like a really nice decision from the court, um, just basically, you know, clarifying what a nominee trust is for Massachusetts law um, in all the, you know, things that I was saying in the brief, that's just very well settled law that it's, um, you know, it's a title holding entity, they still own it for purposes of, um, you know, assessing an interest, it's like she owns it in the deed, etc. So I think the biggest takeaway from that case is, you know, if you have a realty trust uh, across your desk, I mean, I wouldn't go out and, you know, start doing these for Medicaid planning. I don't think that's necessary, but they do crop up from time to time in an application. Like I was just asked by an attorney last week to review one um, in the context of a Medicaid application. So I think it's more like it's going to cross your desk. Um, so, you, you know, have that case handy or just be aware of it um, and know that really, like, you got to find the schedule and whoever is named on the schedule is the owner. And that's the biggest thing. And it doesn't necessarily matter what the realty trust says, except every once in a while, I think you can get these like hybrid realty trusts, irrevocable, irrevocable trusts. Like, the biggest thing I think is if you try to combine a just positive scheme in there. Yeah. So you, like, you can't have like blended the, my case was not like that. It was, I don't know. I don't think I would have brought the case forward if it was mine was a very straightforward nominee trust. So, yeah. So what the court held was that a nominee trust is not a true trust. It is a principal agency relationship. So, but you have to have a really narrowly drafted nominee trust to fit into that box. And if you have things like a spendthrift provision, that's gonna cause it to be a hybrid trust. Right. Now it's no longer that the beneficiaries are directing the trustees, but that the trustees have independent powers. And if the trustees have independent powers separate from what the beneficiaries are telling them to do, you could have what's a real trust as opposed to this principal agency relationship. So you gotta be careful when you draft your nominee trust to not get all fancy and try to put things in there. Again, sort of like what we were doing with Medicaid trust, you wanna keep them simple. You wanna have as few things in there as possible. You wanna say, this is a nominee trust. It's supposed to be ignored for income tax purposes. That all of the benefit, the, um, in order to instruct the trustee, you need the consent of all of the beneficiaries. Yeah. You can have the power to 
have one of the beneficiaries terminate the trust as it pertains to them because it's like a deed. They have the right to take their interest and do whatever they want with their interest. So if they want to leave the nominee trust, they can. But the trust continues on for those that remain. Right. It's like revoking a power of attorney. It's like a souped up power of attorney, really. Right. Uh, if you think of it that way and you look at it that way, you know, don't give the trustee powers to act independent or you're going to have some sort of mishmash that's not going to be covered by the Guilfoyle case. You want right. it to be real streamlined if you're using And I things. think that um, Reba does like a form nominee trust, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, so you could look at something like that. I think that was kind of like what in the Guilfoyle case, I think that it started out as like, it was just like a very standard form trust. I mean, the reason why I like the Guilfoyle case is because, um, is because, you know, this issue kept coming up. It wasn't as pervasive as say power of appointment to charity or some of these other things, but it did come up. And when every, any time the nominee trust thing came up, it was like, you know, Medicaid was, you know, saying like, oh no, you know, that's revocable, that's irrevocable. So it's just, it was kind of nice to have this decision that now, you know, when you have the trust, you know, cross your desk in a Medicaid app, you know, you know what, what the argument is and what, you know, that it's fine as long as you're not one of these hybrid things, um, which could be problematic. So um, I think that that's, you know, another good case to take a look at. And I think, you know, if you look at, you know, starting with the Hain case, you know, Karen talked about that was like the first one in the more recent litigation that was in 2016, um, that kind of knocked out some of their arguments about like the whole turning um income, uh, make, you know, buying an annuity and turning the principal into income and dispersing out. Of course, the court said, you know, no, um, with the power of appointment to issue that they said that was fine. The power of substitution, none of these things um, have really been challenged again. So we're like, I think the power of substitution is fine to use in a trust. Um, and of course, like the daily decision um, we had, um, the use and occupancy clause, I've I never really liked that, to be honest. Um, I don't use a life estate either, especially now with this. Like, I don't do a transfer to an era of trust with a retained life estate because of, you know, they're valuing a life estate, you know, for someone 90 is like 50% of the property. So until that gets resolved, I mean, I don't know why you, you kind of shouldn't do that. Um, so, you know, I you know, I think that in terms of their arguments, it's very dwindled. I think the loan thing that's out there, that's probably not going away. Um, and, you know, arguably you just shouldn't have that in your trust. And there's this other argument still floating around. Um, it's kind of like similar to the Hain annuity argument, but it's, I don't know, Karen, if you've seen this, it's like um, purchasing and the trustee can purchase investment products, um, including life insurance. So if the trustee can do that, which I'm assuming like all trustees can do that, whether or not it says it, they claim, oh, you could purchase this life insurance for the trust and um, put it on a measuring life of somebody else and then you know, pay it all out to the grantor for benefits. It's very convoluted. 
um, but they've gotten some traction with it. Although, again, I haven't seen it coming up that much. Um, so it's not like, you know, I think the ones that do come up is maybe a few little remaining things and then, um, you know, trusts that truly are very problematic. Um, there's supposed to be, there is an eligibility operations memo. Um, they have not updated it. It's at 26-16. They haven't updated it since they should do. They have to do. Um, so it's, it's kind of like an invalid EOS in there. You can count a trust um, that um, says uh, income and principal can be dispersed to uh, the charity and nonprofit. Um, so it has the power of appointment provisions in there. So they have to revise that. Um, and you know that's I've not done that yet, um, and I don't kind of know where else they're going to be going with the irrevocable trust. So I don't know, Karen, if you're if I'm like missing anything. No, so let me just so I do want to talk a little bit more about um, NAMI trust. I use NAMI trust, and here's how I use them. Mm -hmm. um, I find so a there's this issue Reba will talk about where. Um, if you're trying to change tenancy between um, tenancy by the entirety to tenancy by the in common or tenancy in common to tenancy by the entirety, that you need to use a straw. So there's like this four unities of title thing that Reba's getting all worked up about. So when I want to make transfers around spouses, easy peasy, I throw the real estate into the nominee trust and then my schedule of beneficial interest can say tenants by the entirety or tenants in common. And then if it says tenants in common, I can move it back and forth between one spouse and the other spouse. And I do that when I utilize the testamentary trust strategy where I wanna make sure that the spouse that's dying is gonna be the owner of the real estate so it can go into a testamentary trust for their benefit. Um, and so I want to be able to move things quickly. You know, these are deathbed transfers and I might not get my deed on record <coughs> or I might not have um, the ability to, uh, you know, the deed gets returned after the person has died and I can't get it resigned. So the nominee trust sort of takes care of life or I might not have um, the ability to, uh, you know, the deed gets returned after the person has died and I can't get it resigned. So the nominee trust sort of takes care of a lot of those issues. So I use it for that, um, but I use a really stripped down, you know, Reba-like version in order to have the scheduled beneficial interest. And yeah, you got to be careful because if you lose the scheduled beneficial interest, you don't know who owns the property. Um, and that has. I actually have something now where they've lost the schedule, um, and it's kind of like a nightmare. It's I mean, absolutely a nightmare, and it's. Well, I don't even know what do you do because I've never. What would Medicaid do? I don't. So there's actually, I think Reba has um, a resolution for that, and that the current trustee can certify who the schedule of beneficial interest is, and then it has to be like an attorney affidavit accompanying it. Oh. So that the, you know, the attorney knows who was the scheduled beneficial interest. But if those people are gone, yeah, it's anyone's guess how that's going to get resolved. Yeah. That sounds to me like a land court case. Well, especially in the Medicaid context, I think. 
you know, maybe, you know, there probably is case law in other areas, you know, but I say I would, I can picture Medicaid just not allowing that. I mean, I'm sure someone's dealt with that. I, I personally haven't, and I don't want to. I don't want right. to deal with it. <laughs> but, I mean, and when I do it in the testamentary trust realm, uh, when I file my probate, I'm filing my probate and I'm showing that there's real estate on the, on the bond so that it's real clear that this is an asset that's going to go through probate. 